ready? Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei pri hagahafen, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech olam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. All of that. <laughs> now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and I pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruchu, the call to worship. Baruchu et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha. Ba'eli Madonai Michamocha Nedar Bakodesh Norate Hilot 
Blessing of Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu et derech haYeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et Hashabbat la'asot et Hashabbat la'doratam berit olam b'nei Ovayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. Keshishet yamin asa aronai et hashmayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha. Bechol levavcha, uvchol nafshecha, uvchol meyodecha. Vahayu hadevarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Vashinantam levanecha, vidibartabam, vashivtacha, babethcha, uvlechtecha, viderech, uvshuchbecha, uvkumicha. Ukshartam leot al yedecha, vahayu le totafot benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot betecha uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. Our uh, weekly portion for this Sabbath uh, comes from the book of Numbers. It's called Hukat, which is the teaching about the ashes of the red heifer. There's also just a couple of other things that are very significant in this portion, not the least of which is about striking the rock. When Moses had to go and strike the rock uh, to receive water, And then also the um, event of setting up the serpent on the staff in the wilderness. These are three very powerful uh, teachings in our portion uh, for this week. Let me touch on just briefly a little bit of each of those before we get to our Haftor portion. Uh, the, The ceremony of this Ashes of the Red Heifer, we take this red heifer, that it has no blemish uh, in it. It has to be certified as all red. And it's taken outside of the camp, and they build a pyre, and they make a burnt offering out of it. And they burn it all the way down to, where, to the ash level. There's, there's no part of it that remains. And then they collect this ash, and they put it in containers, and they use it for purification ceremonies. In other words, if you came into contact with a dead person, according to the law, you have to be purified before you can go back to the temple. It's, it's used extensively uh, throughout the community. And in fact, um, everybody in the community, it wasn't just controlled by the priests. Everybody in the community would get a little portion of this, and they would have uh, purification water, and they would put a, a pinch of the ash in it, that they would sprinkle to take care of the issues of purification throughout the land. Now, a lot of people, when they first look at this, um, particularly in the modern day, first of all, they don't understand why in the world do we have these purification requirements? And secondly, what in the world is this this ceremony that we go through of, of um, the ash of the red heifer? What in the world could it possibly have to do with anything? In fact, there's a very famous story. Uh, that involves the first real rabbi of Judaism, uh, Rabbi, um, uh, I'm having a, a senior moment here. Anyways, let me go ahead and say that he was questioned by a Gentile, and Yochanan um, ben Zakkai, that's who the rabbi was. We got that. Uh, in any case, he got questioned by this Gentile about what is this ceremony that you do with this ash and the water and you sprinkle on people and how does this purify and so forth. And he proceeded to then say, well, uh, the cedar that is used with regard to this 
has a very special quality. The hyssop has a very special quality. You sprinkle the ashes representing, and and it kind of gave this flowery kind of spiritualized, metaphoric kind of answer to all of this, uh, explaining the mystery of this whole thing. Well, that was good enough for the Gentile to walk away and go, okay, if whatever. But his disciples who heard all this, they challenged him afterwards, and they said, you have shooed off uh, the, the Gentile with a broken reed, uh, you got to have a better answer than that for us. At which point uh, the rabbi said, we don't know what it's for. We don't know what it does. We, we have no idea. And it's kind of a mystery in Judaism, even to this day, that rabbis do not seem to understand why was this ritual set up? Why, what does it represent well, for us messianics, we see some rather interesting things that take place here. For example, the sacrifice itself is not offered in the temple. It has to be taken outside to a, quote, clean place. And then it's consumed there. And apparently when you take this ash and you put it in the water and you take the hyssop branch, and you sprinkle somebody for purification purposes, the person who is sprinkling the person to make them clean, he's now defiled, and he's considered to be unclean. Now, obviously, you had to be clean to go get the material and get the water, get the ash, and do the ceremony. But suddenly, upon making somebody who was defiled undefiled, so they'd come into contact with a dead person, that person now that did the sprinkling, he's now unclean. So there's this substitution thing. In other words, the defilement was here, but it's moved over here so this person can be made clean or a group of people can be made clean. We see some interesting parallels to the work of the Messiah and the work of redemption. First of all, the Messiah was taken out of the city to be sacrificed. You know where they took him to be sacrificed? the same place that the red heifer was taken to to be, be consumed. It was over on the Mount of Olives, uh, within visible distance of the temple. Uh, and it turns out that the work of the Messiah, when he was giving us forgiveness and making us clean before the Lord, he took on the sin, he took on the uncleanness, the curses, of us on him, and he died with those. So this substitution business that's in the sprinkling of the ashes, we see that the work of redemption, that's what the Messiah did for all of us. He, by his one act, he's made us all clean. Just like the one guy with the hyssop sprinkles a whole bunch of people, they're all made clean, and he's the one now who's unclean in this ceremony. That's the best explanation I can give to you. It seems that the answer to this, the meaning behind this ceremony, has to do with the work of the Messiah, the work of redemption uh, that we see. Now, obviously, you can understand why Judaism isn't necessarily going to favor that or promote that, because that would be promoting Yeshua the, the, having done the work of redemption uh, for us all. So let me briefly move on to what else we have in this portion uh, we get to the portion where um, 
the, um, the people run out of water. And apparently that was a frequent thing traveling around. So the people are complaining that they need water and they get kind of unruly. And so Moses goes in before the Lord and says, hey, the people need water. They're about to riot. Uh, what do we do? And God instructs Moses to take his staff and the elders and to go out to this rock. And he instructs him to speak to the rock so that the waters will come forth for the people. Well, now that Moses knows what's going to happen, Moses fell temptation, fell to temptation of because he he was angry with the people. They had said a lot of nasty things about him. And so he comes out there, and so his anger wells up, and he uh, basically almost curses the people and to the effect that he says, what do I have to do? Make water come out of the rock. And he strikes the rock twice. And water did come forth. However, at that moment, Moses lost his ticket to the promised land. And God instructed Moses, you will not go into the promised land. And you got to ask yourself, what in the world took place there? That, that he would so drastically lose <clears throat> his opportunity to go to the promised land. If there's anybody in the children of Israel that's more deserving of to go into the promised land, who would it be beyond Moses? Moses obviously needs to be one of the guys that goes in. Uh, but instead, he, he loses it. Uh, and the reason why he does, the reason why God says that he's lost it, is because he said, you didn't believe in me. Um, part of what God was telling Moses was, if you would have believed in me, you would have followed my instruction. But instead, you took the things and you did your own thing. I said, speak to the rock. You struck the rock. Now you have taught all of Israel that when they need something from the Lord, they got to have the staff of Moses to do it with instead of just be able to speak directly to the Lord for it. And by the way, that is a profound spiritual principle. Uh, you do not need religion to get the Lord to do, meet a request for you. All you have to do is ask him. And Moses didn't teach that lesson. He didn't teach the people how to believe and trust the Lord he, he, he did something else. And, and essentially, that is the profound mistake he made. And by the way, when leaders make mistakes, they're giant mistakes. Uh, when the other younger people and other um, people with less responsibility, if they make a mistake, okay, we'll pick yourself back up. That was a mistake. Lesson learned. Don't do that again. But when a leader makes a mistake and it impacts a whole lot of people, there's much greater consequence uh, for it. And that certainly was the case of, um, the, uh, uh, of Moses in this situation. By the way, uh, if you go in and do a little Hebrew word study on the word believe, you did not believe in me. If you go back and check the Hebrew word on it, are you ready for this? The Hebrew word is amen. Have you ever heard that word before? Amen. We say it all the time. It's, it's when we hear a, a statement that we assert, we, we usually say amen, meaning let it be, 
let it be as you've said. Well, it also can mean, I believe it. I believe that. Amen. And uh, because Moses didn't believe what the Lord had said, he did his own thing. He suffered the consequences. Now, the other one that I want to mention in this portion before we get to the Haftor portion has to do with there comes a time when Israel is in the wilderness and again, there's trouble rises up and the people are murmuring and complaining and, you know, they had all these adverse elements out there and it was a struggle and they've been doing this for a long time. And I mean, they're out there for 40 years and um, this is not fun. And a lot of times people kind of lose sight of what's the goal here? What are we, what are we doing? Where'd we come from? Where are we going? They get caught up in the moment. They get all frustrated and so forth. And so apparently the people went out of control and did that. Well, God uh, had enough of it, decided to punish them for it. That generation was being punished in the wilderness anyways. And he caused these serpents, uh, fiery serpents, to come up out of the ground. And they start biting the people. And you get bit by this thing, and, and it would kill you. And this is horrible. I don't know about you, but I'm one of those guys where not only, you know, I'm deathly afraid of snakes, and I, I hate snakes. You know, remember that movie, uh, um, the Indiana Jones movie, the first one where he looks in the pit, and he looks back, and he says, I hate snakes. I, I chuckled inside. I, I know exactly how Indiana Jones feels about that. If I'd have been in the camp of Israel and the place is running around with snakes, I would have made a tower. I would have gotten off the ground. You know, I would not have been on the same ground with those. Uh, just to share one other anecdotal story, uh, back in my youth, when I worked the harvest, driving a combine all summer harvesting wheat, I happened to be out near a place called Marshall, Oklahoma, out here in Oklahoma, where a lot of wheat's grown. Well, they have a festival there every year called a rattlesnake festival because there's a lot of snakes out there. And I'm out in this field on top of this big old combine, a big field full of wheat, and I'm, I'm turning and I'm, I'm going. And all of a sudden, the combine sound like I had run over a bunch of old boards. And by the way, when you're out in the field, you're very sensitive to anything out there other than dirt and fields. Um, and you don't want to hit any objects that you can't see and things like that. So I hear this crackling sound like it sounds like a bunch of timbers being busted up under the big wheel. And I look over and I look down at the ground. I'm up in the air here driving. I look down and there's snakes going in every direction. I had run over a nest of snakes. I'm, I'm up in the air on this combine. These snakes are not going to get up to where I'm at. You know, besides that, I'm, I'm moving. Uh, I did not get off the combine for the rest of the day in that field. I drank all my water up there. I had them hand me my lunch up there. I peed off of that thing. I did not get on the ground because I knew there was a lot of snakes out there. That's how much I hate snakes. So I give you those stories because I, you need to understand the essence of the story. The children of Israel were in a panicked state. These snakes had come out and were biting the people, and they were called fiery snakes, and apparently it was very painful. 
If he got bit, people were getting sick. They were dying. Great, God was pouring out a great judgment upon Israel at that point. Well, the people cry out to Moses, and Moses cries out to the Lord, you know, for mercy and, and how to help the situation. And so God, and, and it's only two verses that this is about, that's talked about. In fact, this is referred to as the shortest prophecy about the Messiah in all of the Torah. And he's instructed to take a bronze serpent, to wrap it around his staff, and to hold that up in the air. And that if any of the Israelites would simply look up and see it, they'd be cured of the snake thing, and it would get the snakes to go away from them. So Moses did. He made this bronze serpent. He wrapped it on his staff. He went out. He raised it up. He's going around. Everybody, all they have to do is look and live. Now, the explanation as to why, why was that significant? Why, why would that do anything? The idea was this, that you, by you looking at that serpent up there, you're looking at you deserve the judgment of this serpent. You deserve this punishment. By acknowledging that, God's mercy and grace would then kick in, and he would remove that sin, he would remove that punishment from you and grant you life. You know, a little bit like Passover, pass from death to life. You know, all you had to do was look and live. Very simple, and it was a, it was a very simple little event. V well, very significant in terms of having to experience it. But um, in any case... Um, uh, they proceeded to do that. A lot of sons of Israel refused to even look and live. Oh, I don't believe that. Well, they died. Those that were willing to look and follow the instruction, they lived. Now, what is so interesting about that is that Yeshua, in talking to his disciples, referred to that specific story very specifically about himself. When he told them, he said, when you see the Son of Man lifted up like Moses' staff in the wilderness, you will see I am. You will see me, God, lifted up. And by the way, that phrase, I am, that's how God answered the question to Moses at the burning bush, whom shall I say has sent me? You shall say to the sons of Israel, I am that I am. You shall tell them that I am sent you. And so that's, that's a, a personal expression on the part of God, meaning the eternal one. I am eternal. I exist. I've been in the past. I'm in the present. I will be in the future. I am. A uh, very profound uh, statement of identity. So Yeshua makes reference to him being lifted on the cross in the future like, as though that was Moses' staff being lifted up in the wilderness. Now, even before that, when he is meeting with Nicodemus, and this is early in Yeshua's ministry, Nicodemus, as you know, was a religious leader who had come at night to talk to Yeshua, ask him some questions. And they had that interesting conversation there in John chapter 3 about being born again. And Nicodemus was perplexed about, I don't understand this being born again business, and what, what are you talking about? There comes a point where Yeshua says to Nicodemus, 
He says, how is it that you're a ruler of Israel and you don't know these things? He really challenges him on what, what's your understanding of what the Messiah is supposed to do? And he, to back that up, Yeshua refers to what is regarded as the greatest prophecy of the coming of the Messiah in the Torah and the least prophecy about the Messiah in the Torah. The greatest one has to do with that cycle of Moses going up and down the mountain, uh, getting the tablets and, and going up and getting the second set of tablets, going up and down, up and down the mountain, because that's the Messiah. He comes from the mountain, and he's sent by the Father to come down to us to do this work of redemption, and then he goes back up to the mountain, and later on he'll be coming back down from the mountain down to us. This up and down between earth and heaven is pictured in Moses going up and down Mount Sinai. That is a huge prophecy about what the Messiah is supposed to do. It's considered to be one of the greatest prophecies there is. The second one, the one that is least, is those two verses in the Torah about Moses lifting up his staff. And he says to him, he said, um, he, he quotes those two passages and he, like ask him, so what, why is it you don't understand this? Why is it you don't understand the greatest prophecy of mine and the least uh, prophecy of the Messiah? How come you don't understand what the Messiah is supposed to be coming to do and what the need is and how he's going to accomplish it? And you're a ruler of Israel, which really speaks to the fact that there was a lot of people in Yeshua's day who were anticipating the Messiah to come, but they were ill-prepared to understand what the Messiah was supposed to do and how they were supposed to relate to that because they really didn't understand and they weren't paying attention to the prophecies that had come from Moses and the prophets. Now, I'll tell you why I take note of all of this. We know the Messiah is going to be coming back soon, the end of the age. There's a lot of prophecies about that. And I'm stunned. I mean, I'm serious about this. I am stunned at the level of diversity and nonsensical interpretations that are going on all about the coming of the Lord the second time. We are as ill-prepared as they were in the days that Yeshua came the first time. We got a lot of Nicodemus that's running around here, have no concept of what the second coming is supposed to be about. And there's certain evangelical theories about the coming of the Lord and about us being caught up together with him that are popular and actually they're kind of desirable, but they're not supported by the prophecies at all. And in fact, the prophecies that they even cite, they're about other things. And there's a whole assortment of prophecy, literally hundreds of passages of Scripture that address the real coming of the Lord. And so everybody's looking for the coming of the Lord. Do you hear any of those taught? No. Even religious people who go up, they have no idea what, what you're talking about. Case in point. If I were to use the expression, the greater exodus, the average evangelical has no idea what that phrase means. 
They have no idea what that means. has to do with the coming of the Lord at the end of the ages. And there's all the prophets talked about it. From Isaiah to Jeremiah to the Messiah to Moses, they all talked about this, about the second coming. The second coming is prophesied by Moses and the prophets along with the first coming. Now, the Jews back in the earlier days didn't understand those prophecies, didn't parse them out correctly, so they got it fouled up. Now we have in the days where we have now, even though the Messiah has come the first time, we got that all parsed out, and we don't seem to understand it. All right, enough uh, really about our uh, Torah portion. There's some really meaty stuff in there for us to learn and be reminded of. Let me take you to um, our Hofto portion which comes from Judges 11 and is the 30, 33 verses that are in that chapter. And it's a story about a, a fellow named Jephthah. And Jephthah had kind of a interesting upbringing. He wasn't esteemed very highly. There's a whole assortment of issues. It turns out his mother was a harlot and so forth. And when he tried to assert himself within Israel in the time of the judges, um, he felt he was led to do something. Uh, he was rejected. His own brethren rejected him, and they cast him off. Well, all of a sudden, they're starting to have uh, problems with the Amorites, and uh, they're coming and harassing Israel, and Israel can't pull things together to defend themselves properly. But they know about Jephthah, and he's apparently a, a good leader, military leader. And so they approach him, and they ask him, would you come, and would you rally our troops up, and would you uh, help deal with the Amorites? Well, the first thing he does was he says, well, you know, before, you didn't want me around. Now, all of a sudden, you want me around? You know, so there's a little poetic justice going on there um, in the irony of that situation. And by the way, that's the reason why this Haftor portion is taught with the, the Torah portion is because of the irony of in the wilderness doing the right thing and the wrong thing and the right thing and the wrong thing, and it vacillating back and forth, back and forth. We can't seem to get our act together. And so that's the reason why they use this story as a parallel Haftor portion to go with the Torah portion. So if you remember the rest of the story, he does agree to come, and he does rally up the forces, and he goes out to battle with the Amorites. Well, actually, the Amorites came and attacked, and he got ready for them. Um, and in the course of the battle, Jephthah calls upon the Lord, and he says to the Lord, if you'll give me victory, in this battle, when I get home, the first thing I see, I will offer up as a, as a burnt offering to you. I will give it as a gift to you, O Lord. Well, they're successful at the battle, and he's made this vow. So he proceeds to go home. Guess what he first sees when he gets home? His daughter rushes out to greet him. And he's now confronted with the fact that he made this vow to God, that whatever was his, he would give it up to the Lord. And oh, by the way, the daughter was sacrificed. Now, I got to tell you, that's where it gets a little interesting for the Torah and understanding. The Torah does not permit human sacrifice. 
But you see, the people at that time were not following the principles of Torah. They're kind of like trying to hang on, and they're put in desperate straits, and they're doing desperate things, but they're not really following what the Lord said. Why didn't the priesthood, when this happened, why didn't they step up and offer counsel to Jephthah and say, whoa, wait wait a minute, you can't give that as a burnt offering to the Lord. That's unacceptable to the Lord. I mean, anybody, any reasonable-minded person would have done that. But it didn't happen. He followed through on his vow. He, he didn't understand how to back himself out of the vow uh, or break the vow. Or, or he, he, he couldn't go to God and say, God, I need you to annul this vow. I spoke it rashly. And by the way, there's a whole teaching on making vows and about being rash in your vows and not doing that. Even Yeshua specifically spoke about not doing that. Jephthah is an example of making a rash vow. And yet at the same time, it's also telling you about the state of affairs in Israel. There wasn't anybody who understood the Torah well enough to tell Jephthah that's an unacceptable sacrifice to the Lord. And you shouldn't do it. You've got to find something else that is acceptable. You can still keep your vow of something that belongs to you, but make sure that what is offered up is acceptable to the Lord. Just that little additional explanation and teaching could avoid an, an incredible problem. But you see, that was like what was going on in Israel in the camp. They continued to do foolish things, murmuring against the Lord, you know, hassle, strife. They've lost their perspective of that we're leaving Egypt and we're traveling to the promised land. A tremendous lesson for us that we learned from the wilderness experience and also from this Torah portion about how we need to stay focused on what the Lord wants us to do. We need to learn the Torah and do it the right way the Lord has specified when we do whatever it is we do. So that's our portion for this Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom to all of you. If you would now turn in your Bibles to the book of John, to chapter 19, hold your finger there at verse 28, where our Brett Hadashah portion will begin for this week. And as you open the scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time once again uh, that we can dig into your word, that we can be ministered to and strengthened uh, by the covenant and the word that you have given to us. Father, when we study the Torah, Father, you make it alive and powerful and you make it uh, minister to us in our day-to-day lives. And Father, for those of us with the testimony of Yeshua being our Messiah and our Savior, Father, I pray that the words of the New Testament would minister to us as well and strengthen us in our most holy faith in all the things that you have done. Um, Father, you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And Father, you have uh, given us eternal life through the word of the Messiah, and we thank you for that. So Father, we turn this time over to you. We bless you and we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is entitled Chukat, which uh, means the ordinances. 
And what it is, is uh, the, we have several instructions that are given to us here in the book of Numbers and, and some stories as well as what happened to the children of Israel with uh, Moses and with uh, the water from the rock. And also in this passage, we'll have the death of Aaron and several other stories as well. When I have taught this portion before in the course of the, uh, t- the actual, uh, just the Torah cycle, teaching out of the Torah, um, one of the things I've said about this passage is that the Messiah and the, the parallels to the testimony of Yeshua are prevalent throughout this entire Torah portion. It is profound how impactful and how much uh, things in this Torah portion parallel the life and the sacrifice of Messiah. And uh, in, my, in my Bible, in my notes, um, I use a red pen anytime in the Torah when it references something in the New Testament. And there happens to be red marks all throughout this Torah portion. So when it comes time to now teach the Brit Hadashah uh, portion, there is a lot to touch on. There's a lot to connect back to uh, the specific reading uh, for our Torah cycle for this week. Um, We have in our portion the commandment having to do with the sacrifice of the red heifer. The red heifer being a very specific sacrifice that was uh, to be given to where this a a heifer or a female cow had to be found that was red, entirely red all over. In fact, the rabbis have put a stipulation on it that you can't have more than three white hairs present on this red heifer for it. And if it does, it is not an acceptable sacrifice to be a red heifer sacrifice. This sacrifice, uniquely to the temple service, was done outside of the camp, and it was taken to this whole other place, this whole other altar outside of the temple in Jerusalem, particularly on the Mount of Olives, is where this sacrifice was done. According to rabbinical sources, the sacrifice, I believe they say that it has been done nine times throughout all of history. And what the product of this sacrifice was this, was that the red heifer was to be burned up entirely. And then the ash of the red heifer was to be collected, put in a very specific place. And then this ash was used for cleansing, for cleansing the priesthood, for cleansing vessels and articles of the temple. And that this was, it had a very specific use to it of this ash that had the ability to cleanse. And what it was, was the way it worked is this ash was put into a vessel of water and then that water was sprinkled onto whatever it was that was intended to be cleansed. And what was very interesting about the sprinkling is the one who did the cleansing, the one who did the sprinkling would become unclean while the person who was sprinkled would become clean. What's very interesting about that is that no physical contact would happen between those two things. So there's this very interesting precedent in Scripture in which you don't have to physically come in contact with something for your your, uh, uncleanness to be removed and put upon someone else. You might start to see the pattern and the parallel where I'm going with this is that now with the testimony of Yeshua and what Yeshua has done for us, with his sacrifice, that he has made us clean, he has taken our sins upon us, even though we may not have come into physical contact with Yeshua, he has made us clean by our testimony in him, and he took all of our uncleanness, all of our sin upon himself, that which was sacrificed upon the cross. One of the other things that is also very interesting 
In the course of this sacrifice, there was a, with, as with many of the sacrifices, there was a specific procedure that was to be done in the course of doing this, uh, doing this sacrifice. Namely, there was a couple of materials that were used in the course of this sacrifice, particularly cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet material were all three things that were cast into the fire of the red heifer when this sacrifice was taking place. And those things became a part of the ash. They became a part of the sacrifice and they were burned up with the heifer. Now, why is those three things um, particular uh, for this sacrifice? Many people have speculated perhaps what each material means and what it can represent and have deeper significance. Um, we see, you know, scarlet material is woven into the uh, construction of the tabernacle. You see hyssop used in the cleansing of, a, of the leper in that whole uh, procedure that takes place that's given for us in the book of Leviticus. And so you see that, that uh, material of hyssop used quite a bit when it comes to cleansing. And then cedar wood. We, we don't really know exactly. Well, what's the purpose of the cedar wood? Okay, so how does that connect to the Messiah? Well, one thing that's fascinating is this, is that we have proof that hyssop was present at the crucifixion. That's why we're starting in John chapter 19 for our Brit Hadashah portion, where it says this at verse 28. It says this, Yeshua, knowing all that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it up to his mouth. So when Yeshua received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This was, one of the, this was the last thing that the Messiah did while he was alive as a mortal vessel on this earth was this idea that may, so that all scripture might be fulfilled. He said that I thirst and that there is something that is being fulfilled here by this last act or this last thing that took place when the Messiah was alive on the cross. And he said, I thirst. And they found this jar of sour wine and a sponge. And then they had hyssop. I mean, the detail of saying exactly what type of wood the branch was that was lifted up to him is obviously profound. Now, what I certainly believe is this, that hyssop has a very specific purpose. As I said before, it was present in various sacrifices having to do with the altar service, particularly the cleansing of the leper and also in the red heifer sacrifice. Now, the curious thing that we might look for as well is, can we find those other two materials from the red heifer sacrifice at the crucifixion of the Messiah? One, we can confirm. One, we might have to speculate a little bit more. See, anytime in Scripture that it talks about scarlet material or that anything is scarlet, there is a pattern and a parallel, of course, to blood. Blood being red. That when the moon turns to blood, it turns red. And anything that is scarlet or red connects to blood. And we know that the Messiah... He was crucified, he was beaten, and there was blood at present at the crucifixion, most definitely. Certainly blood, when, when there was blood, there was probably stained fabric, wherever it might be, what, that there had to have been, a crucifixion being a bloody situation that it is, scarlet material was present at the, at the crucifixion. We can, we can, as though it doesn't say it in the scripture, we can know wholeheartedly that it was. Now, now cedar wood. Was there any possibility that there was cedar 
at the crucifixion of the Messiah. This is the one we have to hypothesize perhaps a little bit more. Could the tree that he was hung on be cedar? Yes, it's possible that could have been the case. If there was a stake that he was put on, I know many of us talk about how he was hung on a tree, as where crucifixions obviously happened. But if we historically don't know that perhaps it was an execution stake, that tree also could have been made out of cedar. If it was a tree, it's potential that the cross beam could have been cedar. Then the tree could have been a different type of tree, but the cross beam could have been made out of cedar. I like like to truly believe, perhaps this is going on maybe a little too much faith, I like to believe that the crossbeam was a big log of cedar so that the fulfillment of the red heifer sacrifice could be present and be fulfilled through the crucifixion of the Messiah. Because his sacrifice parallels so many other types of sacrifice, whether it's the Ola offering of being lifted up, or whether it is the uh, scapegoat offering at the Yom Kippur when two, when, when the lot falls on one, one is set free, such as when the Barabbas was set free and Yeshua was then set to be the one who was going to be crucified, and that there then the parallel to the water libation ceremony of the temple when his side is pierced in the next couple of verses, water and blood come out. There is parallel to every sacrifice in the altar service to the crucifixion of Messiah. So for that to be fulfilled, we need to see those parallels to the red heifer sacrifice. That's why I believe that cedar was present at the crucifixion in some form or fashion. This is also the case that based on the testimony of the centurion and that we believe the Messiah was crucified on the Mount of Olives, that truly, in fact, his crucifixion may have taken place at the same place or very near the same location as the where the red heifer sacrifice was done. Like I said, it's only been done nine times throughout all of history. This was an altar and a separate location that the Jews seldom used in the act in, of the Torah service or in the uh, altar service, I should say. And so this area was often probably purposed for something else. It was set aside. It was, there was not activity going on at this altar or this location where the red heifer was to be sacrificed at all times. So the fact that the Romans came in, they took over the, basically the whole area, the whole land of Judea, that it's possible that the crucifixion of the Messiah took place at the very location that the red heifer sacrifice was to be given as well. These parallels are, of course, fascinating as we look back at our, our, our Torah portion and what this can mean truly to our, that our Messiah means to us, that He is the one who cleanses us. He is the one who, is, um, to be, who uh, has taken our uncleanness upon Him. And in the whole way that the red heifer sacrifice was to be done and what the ash of the red heifer was used for, it parallels what the Messiah has done for us. It also talks about how that uh, it was to um, that the ash was then to be kept in a clean place, and we also liken that unto the fact that it takes very good note that the Yeshua, when he died, was put in an unused tomb. It was a clean tomb. It wasn't a tomb that had dead bodies already in it. That it would have been an unclean place, as a tomb with dead bodies are. But he was placed in a clean place. Once again, another parallel to the ashes of the red heifer. Now, one of the next stories that takes place in our Torah portion 
is the time in which the water from the rock stopped. Uh, Miriam, who is the sister of Moses, she passes away. This is now many years wandering in the wilderness, and she passes away. And whether there's a connection between Miriam and the waters that came forth from the rock that um, provided water to the children of Israel for those 40 years, um, we see, of course, that there is a connection between Miriam and the stoppage of this water. There's many ideas and theories on that that we can discuss perhaps on another another day. But what happens afterwards is all about Moses striking the rock for the second time, even though he was told to go and speak to the rock to receive the water. Now, in the wilderness, water represents life. If you do not have water, you do not have life. And so this whole idea of the waters of salvation and how that is tied to and connected to Yeshua is prevalent, and that's a theme throughout all of Scripture. We know that Yeshua is the well of living waters, that if you ever drink of Him, you will never be thirsty again, and that is how you receive eternal life. Well, with that as a precursor, turn with me now to John chapter 4. This is the story in which the Messiah speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well. This is one of the traditional readings for this Torah portion because of its connection, of course, to the water. The water being the source of life, the sign of life that the children of Israel needed in the wilderness. And this uh, story here, obviously, is surrounding and all tied to water. And it was because this conversation took place at a well that, um, that water became the subject of the discussion. So let me read here now. Let's uh, enjoy this story once again from John chapter 4, talking about the Samaritan woman that the Messiah meets at the well. Beginning at verse 3, it says this, He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called uh, Sechar, and near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, every time you see Joseph in the scripture, Joseph and the Messiah, very much tied and connected together in that, in that the stories are so uh, intertwined with each other. Verse 6, now Jacob's well was there. Yeshua, therefore, being wearied from his journey, thus sat by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Yeshua said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Yeshua answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? See, she's connecting it back to now the Messiah is talking to her, and he's immediately taking this to a more spiritual principle as he's speaking to this woman. It's not just about physical water that she would be able to draw out, because she's sensing this. You see how uh, intuitive she is that the Messiah is leading on to something, even though she might initially start with the fact that it's all like, um, okay, you don't have anything to draw with, so what are you talking about? Are you greater than Jacob? See, we've got to remember this is the story of Jacob and what, what happened with him. Remember when he came to a, a well, 
Um, the story of Jacob and what he, he could do at Wells was uh, quite fascinating, in fact. You've got to remember, it was Jacob that went into his father Laban's house. This would have been further north, so this wasn't the exact well. But he was a man that was able to go, and he was able to move a giant stone from a well that actually broke the well and brought water forth. This was when he met Rachel for the very first time, and he talked to her and heard the story about how all the shepherdesses of the area had to come, and they all had to move the stone together, and then he moved the stone. And so there's this idea that Jacob was able to bring forth water from a well, that there, there, this, was, that this was, was, was known of, of their father Jacob. And now it also says here that this is the land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And that this was a well that, that, that Jacob had, had established. And so there, there's a connection here, obviously, back to your, their fathers. Now, here's what's interesting about the divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. See, the Samaritans was a sect of Judaism. They do believe in the promises of, the, 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 of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and Moses, and the following of Torah and the commandments. Their major interpretation only that, uh, that changed was they believed that Mount Gerizim in the land of Samaria was the place where God placed his name for worship to be done, and not Jerusalem where the temple was established by King David. This was the greatest divide. Now, but this was a pretty big divide. This was thing where it's like, okay, we can't celebrate the feasts with each other. We can't because we can't do sacrifices appropriately with each other. And this was why there was such a great divide. But the fact that the connection of the story is going back to her father, Jacob, was that, that there could be some common ground that this communication was taking place. So Yeshua says to her again, it's now verse 13, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, speaking of the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Yeshua said to her, Go call your husband and come, he and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Yeshua said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one who you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you to be a prophet. Our fathers worshipped at this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. She sees, she's seen Yeshua coming to this place, and she's like, Oh my gosh, has there been a, is a prophet coming to Samaria? Something that's going to, to, to say or to, or, or to teach or, or because she's immediately knowing this man knows much more. He knew these things about me that only God could know. And that's sort of a secret that mm, you would keep to yourself back in these days. If there was a woman that had had five previous husbands, so you want to talk about somebody who was shamed in amongst society, this woman would qualify. Not only is she a Samaritan as far as the Jews are concerned, but this is the woman's history. And the fact that the Messiah knew this, this was, would have been shocking to her. Now, but she's perceiving, obviously, like, you're from God. Whatever you're saying, it's like, this is from, this is from the Lord. Yeshua continues to say to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship when you do not know. We know, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, 
and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such, a worship, such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Yeshua said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, what follows after this is uh, the disciples show back up after buying the food, and they see Yeshua talking to the woman, and they, they, they go and, and they ask, um, let's see, they, they ask if he's, he's hungry, and he says, no, I, I, I have food of which you do not know, as in the Messiah is, is nourished and energized by things beyond uh, our mortal physical minds can perceive, and the, Yeshua, and the disciples are like, uh, did somebody give him something to eat? I'm not quite sure. What happens, of course, is the woman goes back into the city. She starts telling them all these things, and that the Messiah has come, and through her testimony, many people of the city Come to believe and follow Yeshua, his testimony, his word, the things that he is saying and that he has said. And many people come to faith through this interaction. Like I said, this interaction was peculiar to say the least. First of all, you know, she was surprised first and foremost that he was even talking to her. As a Jew, her being a Samaritan, um, why are we, we, we don't have any dealings with each other. Why would you even converse with me, much less ask for water? And that he then through this conversation and this, this gen, you, you can sense this sort of this gentleness to the conversation that she is, that she's responsive to him and the things that, that he's saying. And then she knows, she perceives things. She perceives that he's talking about being greater than our father Jacob. She perceives that uh, the things that he's saying is, um, is whether he's a prophet and that he speaks uh, the word of the Lord. And then as, she, as he says more and, and this teaching of this idea that it's not about worshiping on Mount Gerizim or at Jerusalem, but it's about worshiping God in spirit and in truth and that true followers of God, that is the way that they are to worship. This testimony causes somebody that she heard these words and suddenly she believed. And then she, she knew that this was about the Messiah. And then, very peculiar, Yeshua says, I am the Messiah to her. He tells her outright. Other times in the, in the Gospels, he, he sort of dodges the question sometimes where the, where the disciples might say, um, you know, are, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? And then he has always said or, or sort of uh, uh, been kind of coy with the answer and says, well, you, what have you said? Or what is it that men say? Or uh, He has these sort of interactions with this woman. He comes out plainly and says, I am the Messiah. And there's this testimony, this idea of, of her and she received this testimony, received the salvation just from speaking to him in the course of this conversation. This is the lesson and a story for us all to learn, the idea and the concept of receiving the salvation and the eternal life from the Messiah. See, most of the people in the first century, when they started following the Messiah or listening to his word, they always had to ask the question, is he the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? Are you, what, what, what are you? And this question was there. For those of us, after the fact, who have our Bibles, our scriptures, and we can read the entirety of his testimony, the entirety of the, of the story, what the disciples said about him, and we can know and believe Yeshua is the Messiah. So by the time that we go, that we would confess with our heart and to say that he is the Messiah and we're asked for his salvation, we ask for his eternal life, we know who we're talking to. 
And that's what he spelled out very clearly for the woman as well. He clearly said, I am the Messiah. This is a very straightforward. This is sort of a lesson for all of those evangelists that might be reaching out to try and get people to come to faith in Yeshua, to follow Him and to worship Him in spirit and truth. There's a very simple conversation that we walk you through to receive that water and receive that salvation. You pray and you ask for it. You ask for His salvation. You ask for His forgiveness. You pray that you might receive the eternal life by inviting Him into your heart. Make Him the high priest of your temple and bring Him in. And this is how you receive life, by speaking to the Messiah. This is, of course, the, the folly of Moses back in the wilderness. See, he struck the rock way back at Rephidim before Mount Sinai, and that's how water came forth, and that's where water came from for the children of Israel in the wilderness. Now, after wandering uh, almost 40 years into the wilderness, and the water stops, and then it's like, oh, we need water again. Moses, uh, come over and come do that thing that you did before. You know, you struck the rock and out came water. In fact, some sages actually speculate that every location they went to, Moses found a new rock that was struck and water came forth. Other uh, theories uh, come from uh, 1 Corinthians 10 that talk about how there was a water or there was a rock that was the rock of their salvation that followed them in the wilderness, which is, as it says, clean, clean language in um, 1 Corinthians 10. And so then we wonder, it's like, oh my God, was this rock almost like a personified part of Israel that was present with the children of Israel in all their wanderings? As in the rock either walked around or every place they came to, the same rock was there? We don't know, that, but that very well could have been one of those supernatural uh, miracles that we see reading between the lines of Scripture that could have been the case. Needless to say, they come to this place and water stops. God tells Moses, he says, go and speak to the rock and water will come forth. Speak to it. Don't strike it. Speak to it. This is how you receive the water of life. This is how you receive those waters. Moses, of course, he lost his cool. He, he was tired of the murmuring and the, the grumbling. He had just lost his sister. God told him to take the rod. Now, the rod had budded in our previous Torah portion and was there to be a sign against anybody that would rebel against the authority of God. That's why the rod was there. But Moses... Failing to keep his cool or, and composure and to believe and follow exactly what, God, what the Lord had said, he grabbed the, the rod and he struck the rock. He had to strike it twice before the water came out. And this is what caused Moses to not be allowed to enter into the promised land because God said he failed to believe in God. And Moses, being the holy man that it was, should have been allowed to go into the promised land, but he was not. And this was because he struck the rock a second time. See, here's the thing. This is a greater prophecy to the coming of the two, of the, the, the Messiah coming twice. See, the first time that the Messiah came, he was struck. He was beaten and he was bruised for his crucifixion before the life-giving, everlasting life that was present in the Messiah could come forth. He had to suffer that judgment and he had to suffer uh, the punishment that we deserve and hang on that cross and die so that we might all receive everlasting life. He was struck the first time that he came. When he comes the second time, there will be no striking against the Messiah. He will be the one, and in the day and age that we live in, it is not that, we, that God, Messiah has to die again for us to receive eternal life. Instead, what we have to do is speak to Him so that we receive that eternal life. This is the lesson we learn from Moses striking the rock twice. Yeshua was already beaten once, 
And because of that that he took upon himself, we have received eternal life. But when he comes again, and as we live in the day and age after the crucifixion that has taken place, all we have to do is speak to him, just as the Lord told Moses, speak to the rock and receive the water. What we have to do and teach others in this generation and in generations previous, speak to the rock of your salvation so that you might receive the eternal life that comes from it. This is why we pray to the Lord. This is why we receive that eternal life. This is the testimony that we learn. This is the parallel, of course, between what water represents in the Scripture and in the wilderness. It represents life. Without it, there is no life. And Yeshua, He is the one who, is, who gives us the well of living waters. Now, um, one more last section I want to talk about in our uh, Brit Hadashah portion for this week. If you would now turn to John chapter 12. It seems like we've been in the uh, book of John, the, this entire passage. Um, you might say the entire book of John could be a Brit Hadashah portion for, uh, this, uh, for this week's portion. But now going to John chapter 12. This is where we are talking about the Son of Man being lifted up. You see, we have um, in our Torah portion, we have another story after all this took place. See, and when they're wandering in the wilderness at the end of 40 years, children of Israel were getting kind of antsy, grumbled at any other, any given thing that might happen. And uh, so once again, they grumbled against the Lord uh, again in the wilderness. And then the Lord sent a judgment upon them, sent fiery serpents, venomous snakes into the camp that started biting the people and causing many of them to die of the plague. To remedy this plague that was coming, Moses did something very interesting. He took a bronze serpent, so he crafted a bronze serpent, raised it up upon a pole or a sign that it could be held up and lifted up in the wilderness. And the people, anyone who were bitten by the venomous serpents, um, could look upon the, the serpent and live. Look upon this bronze serpent and then they would live again. Quite an interesting sort of procedure, yet the parallel between it and the crucifixion of the Messiah is absolutely uncanny. One, the Messiah, the, Messiah, the Son of Man, He was lifted up. In fact, it specifically says, talking about how He had to be lifted up as Moses was, or as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. As He was lifted up in the wilderness, he, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Otherwise... You cannot receive the life the, 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 it, his, um, you cannot receive the life that you need in the fact that you are living in death. Just like the serpents had bit the, the sons of Israel in the wilderness and they were dying of the, the, the venomous and the, the venom and the plague. And yet looking upon the serpent, the sign of the death, that's the other thing that's interesting about that. The serpents were the things that was causing the death. So why would we look at something that is death and then receive life? Well, gee, it's the same reason why we look upon the Messiah dying on an execution stake on, on the cross, which was a sign of death, yet when you look upon it, then you receive the life. That is, the, 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 again, the fascinating parallel, the fact that it was a bronze serpent that he was to, that you were to look upon. Let me read here in John chapter 12. Starting at verse 27, where the Messiah predicts his death upon the cross. He says this, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, say to me, from this hour, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both, both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said, 
that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. So the people actually heard this testimony of God speaking from heaven to the Messiah. Yeshua answered and said, The voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And he, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. He was basically saying because crucifixion was something that was known, that then it's like, I mean, this is how certain people die in, under Roman rule, Roman law, talking about dying while being lifted up. Oh, he's talking about crucifixion. They knew that this was the prediction of how he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? How can you say the Messiah has died? Because the Messiah is supposed to live forever. Yeshua said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Yeshua spoke and departed and was hidden from them. And then the teaching continues on here in John chapter 12. Let me go ahead and continue reading here at uh, verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, the Lord, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. This is basically the report back to those that might have believed that he was the Messiah, but then if he were to die, we then, he's, he, well, then he can't be the Messiah because we've been taught from long ago that the Messiah is forever and he can't die. But again, the, the prophet Isaiah, he prophesied of the people who would become blinded by this, blinded by the fact that the Messiah came and did a certain work, but he didn't do exactly what was perhaps expected of him by the religious authorities at the time. This is why we live in a dead world today where the majority of Judaism doesn't believe Yeshua is the Messiah. It's because he didn't fulfill and do all the prophecies that they believed that he should have. Verse 42, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the, the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. This is talking about, of course, they loved being the ones in charge. Yeshua cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word which I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. 
Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. This is the Messiah connecting to the fact that we are not to follow the symbol of him. Just like that, that bronze serpent in the wilderness. What actually became of that bronze serpent is actually a terrible, tragic story throughout the history of Israel. That bronze serpent that Moses made actually ended up in the temple during the time of the kings to which King Hezekiah had to come and destroy that serpent because people worshipped it in the temple and burned incense to it uh, throughout some of the years and the generations of Israel and the structure of the temple. That symbol became an idol to the people. The symbol that was supposed to represent the life and give them life. We have to remember, what does that symbol represent? It represents everlasting life that comes from God. The power of God. It's not the power of, of the, the shape of the, what is, was created. Just like the Messiah pointing to the fact that it's not about Him, the man, that we should worship Yeshua as a man as being the sacrifice that brings us eternal life. No, we have to understand that the man Yeshua represents God. Now, not to mince any words here, Yeshua was God. I believe it was a physical body that inhabited the soul of God and the Holy Spirit of God, and that we should not look to Messiah as being something that is less than God. However, we must also not get focused on the symbol of who he was. What he, what he looked like, what he represented. The whole idea that the cross and the crucifixion has become the sign of our salvation, that we should not, because any symbol that is created can become an idol. In fact, that's what some sects of Christianity have made an idol out of the Messiah. They've made an idol out of other saints. And the modern-day Christianity that represents Yeshua as being the Messiah Judaism rejects because they present him as a man that is worthy of worship. No man is worthy of worship. Only God is worthy of worship. And, but we present this symbol of death as what we should worship and who we pray to and all of these things. And modern day Christianity has presented Yeshua in a way without the balance to the fact that he came representing his father. He came in the power and the authority of his father. Now, he also said, I and the Father are one. Now, we, our human brains can't seem to wrap our head around this whole idea and this concept of how Yeshua and God are one. Needless to say, let us not be caught up in the symbol, because that's what we have to make sure that we don't do. Messiah is saying here, if you believe in him, you believe in him who sent me. God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. The Messiah didn't come, causing us to then only follow Yeshua and everything about Yeshua without hearkening back to the fact that it was the creation that he brought us into existence and created us to be is the one who gives all power and authority and it's by his spirit that we live and that life was breathed into us. And But Yeshua came and what he had to do was had to represent and pay the price for what every man deserves for breaking our covenant with God the Father. Only God could provide that sacrifice, and that is why Yeshua had to die, and that is why Yeshua had to come in the flesh of a man, so that a man paid that price for the punishment, and so that we could see the symbol of what we deserve for our mistakes and of our sin. This is how it all works all together. But let's not lose sight on the fact that it is not just the Messiah, but it is God the Father and God the Holy Spirit that is one that is the one we are in covenant with.
The Messiah came and he spoke some of these words and we get so caught up in this idea of like, oh, well, then that means God the Father was greater than God the Son and so then that means Yeshua is less than this. No, if Yeshua is less than God, then his sacrifice doesn't pay for our sin. But because Yeshua is God, yet represented him as this symbol, we could, something we could see, something we could follow, and something that we could speak to so that we might have eternal life. See, it's hard for us to speak to something that we, we know how to talk to one another. We know how to talk to another human being. That's how we communicate with each other. We say this all the time. And that is why we, we almost need this, this contour, this example. How do you talk to God? Well, you talk to him like you talk to a man. This symbol of it, just talking to somebody, this is how you receive eternal life. And that is why we needed the example of Yeshua and why God had to present himself as a man, which he's capable of doing because he's God. No, don't ever say that God can't come in the flesh of a man. That's perceiving that God can't do something. I wouldn't perceive to presume something about God in that way. But he gave us this example so that we might speak to him and receive eternal life. The last thing I want to say is this. Eternal life that we receive from God the Father. Everywhere in the scripture, wherever lasting life is mentioned, it is mentioned to us as a present day possession. That it's something that you receive immediately upon as you pray that if you believe in him, that he may have everlasting life. Not that we will receive everlasting life after we die. See, that's what some people think is that when we die, we'll go to the pearly gates. We'll see St. Peter there or whatever. And then that's when we'll get our ticket. And here's like, here's your everlasting life. Welcome to heaven. That is a complete that's, that's nonsense and a fairy tale that the church has sort of created this idea that that's what we receive and that's how we receive eternal life and that's how, what heaven is and that's how we live with God in heaven. None of that is biblical. What it is is when you have received eternal life, you have received it in the present here and now and if you are a born-again Christian, you are living your eternal life right now. Your eternal life has begun it's not something for us to wear out our, our temporary mortal life and then we'll get to cash in and we'll, then we'll get to spend our, our eternal life. No, your eternal life has begun now because of the testimony that you have in Yeshua. So what are you going to do with it? How are you going to live your life in this eternal life that you've received by speaking to the rock of our salvation, by receiving the waters of eternal life to where you spiritually, if you are filled by the Spirit of God, you are never thirsty for another spirit again or thirsty for, for anything else, knowing that all power, all glory comes from God and that He gives us that, that feeling and, the, and the, the power inside of us, inside our hearts, and we have His Spirit dwelling inside of us. If your spirit is dwelling inside of you, then you have eternal life. How are you living that today and now? That is the commission, that's the, that's the coaching that I'm, that I'm giving to all believers that when we have this testimony and when we have and we, we've, been, we've been brought from death to life and we have no fear of death because of what the Lord has done for us and the salvation that we have, what are we doing with this eternal life that we have received by speaking to the rock and receiving the waters of salvation? What a great blessing that that is. And may I commission us to do with it what the Lord would have us to do, to walk uprightly before Him, following His commandments and His word, fleeing from temptation and sin and evil, and being those that have a testimony to minister to others so that others might receive that blessing. It's not limited by any uh, amount that his ability to save is innumerable. And all who come and ask for that salvation 
can receive it. That is how we need to be living our lives as born-again Christians and as those that are followers and keepers of the commandments of God. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for everything that you do in our lives. We thank you for this teaching, this instruction. Father, we thank you for uh, giving us the salvation, that all we have to do is ask and that we might receive it. Father, we have sinned. We have done, committed terrible, terrible things, Father. But I pray that... Um, that you would cause us, our hearts, to turn back and to be stirred back to following your word and your instruction. May we dig into your word. May it minister to us and strengthen us in all the things that we face and all the issues that we have to deal with in our day-to-day lives. And Father, we pray that our eternal life, Lord, that we would recognize that we have received that gift and that we might live rightly and appropriately because of it. We thank you for all the blessings that you give to us on this day. I pray that everyone has a restful Shabbat and that everyone will be rested, refreshed, and ready to uh, tackle the week again when it begins. Father, we love you, bless you, and thank you. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.